Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. You know, here at Ministry Watch, we cover a lot of stories about scams, scandals, and fraud in the church. Every story is different, of course, but I find that most of the scandals have one of two origin stories. The first story is the story of someone who sets out from the beginning to defraud people. These people have evil intent right from the start. But in my experience, those kinds of stories make up by far the smallest portion of the stories we write about here at Ministry Watch. The vast majority of the stories we tell here are stories of people who start out well, with good intentions, but who are lured by some combination of money, power, or possibly sex into self-destructive behavior. And that often leads to public scandal and sometimes even organizational collapse. That's why one of the things we look for here at Ministry Watch is any unusual concentration of power or money. And perhaps nowhere has that concentration been more conspicuous in recent years than in the area of worship music. Praise and worship music now generates hundreds of millions of dollars a year in performance and royalty income. Most of that money comes from Christians, some of it directly from churches themselves. But, as we'll explain in this episode of the Ministry Watch podcast, that money often goes directly into the coffers of secular corporations and others with no interest in the peace, purity, and unity of the church. To help us unpack some of these issues, I've asked Kelsey Kramer McGinnis to be on the program today. Kelsey has written a fascinating and helpful story for Christianity Today. In fact, it's the cover story in this month's issue, and it's called Our Worship is Turning Praise into Secular Profit. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for today's program. But until then, here's Kelsey. Kelsey, welcome to the program. I must say that I was really taken by your story in Christianity Today. And um, first of all, what motivated you to want to write this story? Gosh, that's a good question. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, I, I appreciate it. It's really fun to to talk to people about it as well as write about it. Um, you know, I've been involved in music ministry for a long time. I have parents who were involved in music ministry growing up. And I think like a lot of writers and um, researchers out there, sometimes we're drawn to study the things that we're familiar with, that we're insiders to. And so I have been kind of playing around with the idea of writing about um, the changing financial structures around worship music for a while. As someone who feels like I've watched that industry really sort of be changed really dramatically during my lifetime, which, you know, I'm not that old, but I feel like I've, I've seen even from my, you know, elementary and middle school years, first going to church camp to now, um, that evolution has been really interesting to see. And as I've, um, looked at it from different angles and read the work of other people who are studying it, it interests me personally. And I also, um, think that there are some big 
important questions that Christians can be asking ourselves about our worship, about music that's being created for the worship of the church. Um, and I, I think that those questions are worth having at the local and the sort of broad level. Yeah. Well, I do want to ask some of those big questions, but before we do that, Kelsey, can can we talk about just some of the basic numbers? I mean, one of the things that you talk about in your article is that um, is that um, music, especially intellectual property, the royalty piece of uh, where where a lot of the revenue streams are generated for worship music and Christian music, is a multi-billion dollar industry generally and even within the narrow christian world we're talking about i would guess many hundreds of millions of dollars every year is that first of all is that accurate yes so um one issue that i've talked to other people who study worship music particularly at the academic uh, in academic spaces one problem that we have when we're studying this is that there really isn't a great estimate of exactly how big financially the Christian music industry is. We know it's millions of dollars, but the revenue streams are so complicated and sort of diffuse that it's very hard to, to pin it down. But every time we get a little peek under the hood, sometimes you get a little bit of a glimpse. Oh, this, this ministry is bringing in millions of dollars. You realize this ecosystem is huge and probably bigger than any of us studying it even realize. Um, and so, so yes, you, you're right to notice this is, this is a massive financial, uh, yeah, financial ecosystem. And it seems to me, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, Kelsey, is that, uh, maybe if not at the center of the whole thing, but, but probably pretty near the center <laughs> is the is CCLI, the Christian Copyright Licensing Incorporating Organization. And, and you know, in a nutshell, CCLI wor works in the Christian space the same way that ASCAP or BMI or similar to the way ASCAP and BMI operate in the secular space, which is that, you know, if a if a bar owner wants to play music in the bar, or if a record company, uh, I mean, a, a radio station wants to play a music on the air, they have to pay a few pennies per song for the right to do that. But when you aggregate the thousands of record company uh, of uh, the thousands of radio stations and the maybe hundreds of thousands of bars all over the world, um, you're taught you talk about a lot of money. In the Christian space, though, it's different in that it's churches. If churches play worship music, they pay a licensing fee to CCLI. CCLI aggregates, collects all that money, and then distributes it to the copyright holders based on the number of times those the license holders played those songs. Um, first of all, did, did I more or less accurately describe that little small piece of the ecosystem? And number two, do you have any idea how much CCLI takes in every year and how much it distributes to copyright holders? Uh, I do not know how much they bring in per year. Um, we do know what they charge churches for a licensing fee. For, for coverage, basically for copyright protection. Um, so your, your description of what they do is, is pretty accurate. They, they sort of track use of songs and distribute royalties according to the song's use, which makes them a lot like other um, sort of royalty collection agencies, but 
unique in that what they're tracking is actually the the worship of individual churches, the worship practices of individual churches. So that is a distinct difference, um, just in terms of function and what they're actually actually tracking. Um, so. So, like I said, I don't know exactly how much money CCLI brings in every year. Uh, I don't know um, what their exact uh, royalty distribution agreement is with particular songwriters in terms of um, the percentage of royalties paid or anything like that. No. But one of the things that we can say is that it's big money, right? I mean, you know, so for example, there are, we we do, as you said a few moments ago, Kelsey, get a, a glimpse under the hood of the car occasionally or, or a peek, you know, under the tent. So for example, you, um, uh, Integrity Music, uh, which I believe is owned by David C. Cook, um, they're a nonprofit organization. So they release their Form 990s to the public so you can see how much money they are um, uh both receiving and paying out. Now, the Form 990 is, an, is a blunt instrument. It's not precise um, and it's not complete. But but we can see that just from that just from one organization, David C. Cook, that millions of dollars come in and millions of dollars go out every year. And you brought up a, an important aspect, an interesting aspect of this story. Um, that I'd like for you to say more about, because one of the things that that does is is, is that it creates a uh, if if I could put it this way a financial product an instrument a semi predictable revenue stream that becomes an asset. So, for example, you mentioned um, Leland, the Christian artist that goes under the the name Leland. I think I forget what his full name is. You mentioned it in your story, but. Um, um, he basically sold his rights um, to um, th that there are companies around that are buying up intellectual property. They're paying the artist, in some cases, large sums of money in order to have access to that revenue stream. Can you say more about that practice? Yeah. So the example in the, in the article I use is the song Lion and the Lamb, which is co-written by Leland Mooring, um, probably the most popular recording out there, it, it recorded by Leland, um, his band, um, but he co-wrote it with, with two other people. Um, and yes, so one, one change I would make to what you just said is, I, I don't know if it was Leland Mooring himself who sold um, a stake in the rights to the song. It could have just as easily been the publisher. Um, so this is a little bit in the weeds, but usually, the songwriting royalties for these songs are split like 50-50 between the publisher and the songwriter. Uh, and that can be negotiated in different ways, depending on how many songwriters there are. Um, it, it varies, but typically it would be 50-50. So what could have happened here with Lion and the Lamb was it could be capital CMG selling their stake, which is probably half of what Lion and the Lamb makes. Uh, it also could have been the songwriters. It's hard to say. Uh, I, I cite another example in the article, which would be Matt Redman selling a stake in his back catalog, which is a different thing. That's basically him selling a stake in the whole back catalog of all the songs that he's written up to this point saying, you know, I'm giving you a portion of the revenue of this music in perpetuity, um, and you'll give me a lump sum for that upfront. Uh, and those are two different things. Um, 
And and like I said, the, the songwriting royalty piece is a little bit more opaque because I don't actually know who the person or entity was that decided to put the royalties in the investment market, which is what happened with Lion and the Lamb. Right. Well, to me, what's interesting about that, Kelsey, uh, I mean, a lot of things that are interesting about that. Um, for one thing, it re- I, I'm old enough to remember that when David Bowie um, sold his back catalog probably 25 or 30 years ago, and they called him, he, he, he's, he's, they were called Bowie Bonds at that time because he was basically, you know, turning his entire back catalog and the royalty revenue stream into, you know, into a financial asset and he was selling a stake in that asset so he could, you know, get the money now rather than, you know, 50 years from now, he, and, and which is, of course, what would have happened if, and, and of course, David Bowie passed away. So he was, in some ways, it was, uh, it was innovative at the time. The, what was interesting to me about your article is that now, not only is it no longer innovative, that it's, it's become commonplace in the secular market, but it has now infiltrated the Christian market as well. And uh, and I th- so that that piece of it's interesting. The other piece that was interesting for me is that um, the people that own those songs, they may not have any relation to the church whatsoever. Uh, they may not be Christians in any way, shape, or form. They they bought the rights presumably because they wanted to make money on those rights. And one of the th- the things that I know has happened in the secular market, and I'm just wondering if it's happened in the Christian market as well, is that the people that buy those rights then become heavily invested in monetizing that investment. Uh, in the secular world, they'll, you know, try to get the songs placed in television commercials and on, you know, television programs. In the Christian world, since the only real revenue or one of the major revenue streams is CCLI, they got to be pretty heavily invested in making sure that churches keep singing those songs. So we got basically non-Christians, people with no theological understanding or training whatsoever in some cases, marketing to the churches to get them to use particular songs purely for the purpose of making money. Do I have that right? So I would say that the structure is in place for that to happen. It's really hard to say whether that is actually happening. Um, so it is true. And I, when I was researching this story, I asked my dad, who is in finance, I sort of described to him this example of Lion and the Lamb. I said, there is, there is a share of, of royalties or basically for sale to an investor right now. Here's what they're saying it will make. Here's what it would cost to buy it. If this person buys a share in the royalties for Lion and the Lamb, do they have do they basically now have a reason to make sure that song continues to be used? And he said, absolutely. That's exactly what's happening. Um, so, so yes, it creates the opportunity. Now, whether or not a person could actually use that opportunity is a little bit opaque to me in terms of influencing particular churches to use that song. Now, there are other ways to collect songwriting royalties outside of sort of making sure that lots of churches are using it, um, you know, incentivizing other artists to cover the song, releasing, you know, having an artist release a YouTube cover. There, there are other ways of making sure that, that song sort of remains in the ether of the worship music industry. Um, but, but you're right. And this is one of the things I try to outline in the article is what's happening is creating a structure 
in which those things could happen. Um, I don't know who the investors are who are who are buying shares in these royalties, um, or if they would be at all interested in looking at particular churches and trying to exert influence there. But the structure exists where that could happen, and it could be profitable, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, and though it also, it seems, um, it's strange credulity, shall we say, that these structures exist, and there's clearly big money to be had from the efficient operation of these structures, these machines, that that wouldn't be at least some factor in what's going on here. Because uh, as you say, there are other ways to generate revenue other than through the church. But, um, it, you know, in reality, CCLI at least gets most of its revenue through the, through through, um, through church plays. And then you look, if you look at, say, for example, Christian Radio, which um, is, you know, they're, they're paying um, rights not to CCLI but to other organizations, but they are nonetheless g- generating a revenue screen, stream. And a lot of what we sing in the church, at least among in contemporary worship services, are what we hear on the radio. So it seems to me that there is a bit of a, I don't know what you could say, a virtuous circle between all of these revenue streams and the synergy between them. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yes, yes. And, and you're right to note that there is a difference in um, what you would hear on Christian radio and the way that that financial structure works. But there is increasing overlap. Um, and, you know, that's kind of a, a whole other story at this point. But, um, you know, over the past 20 years, worship music as sort of a subgenre of Christian music has really become a much larger share of the Christian music industry more broadly. And so you do have worship pastors increasingly finding, you know, um, or their congregants hearing a song on the radio and coming to them and saying, let's, let's do this song. Um, and so, so yes, there is definitely a lot of crossover and, um, and uh, I don't know, collapse is the wrong word, but the, those markets have sort of increasingly collapsed on each other in a really interesting way over the past yeah. couple of decades. All right, so let me let me step back and, and add, kind of paint a picture here um, that I think gets at some of these big picture issues. And you tell me what's wrong with this picture, <laughs> Kelsey, or what's right with it. Uh, okay, so let's, let's back up 100 years and I'm in a church, right? And uh, what songs am I gonna be singing in my church? I'm gonna be singing the songs that are in my denominations or my churches hymnal. Those songs are songs that have, that uh, by the time I see them, by the time I pick up the hymnal in a pew in a local church, that hymnal has gone through a very long and torturous process, right? I mean, the the theologians have vetted it, musicians have vetted uh, the songs that are there. By the time it, they end up in the hymnal, you know, in you know that I'm holding in my hand, singing in a, in a Sunday morning service, pretty elaborate process, uh, careful scrutiny, um, and and furthermore, while uh, as you point out in your article, people have been making money off of hymns and Christian songs for probably to some extent for hundreds of years. I think it's also fair to say that um, those hymnals 
often have many, many songs that are in the public domain. There are no royalty revenue streams associated with that. And the songs were chosen, again, by theologians, by leaders in my denomination to match the beliefs of that denomination. Fast forward, so, so, so that's 100 years ago. Now, today, I go to a church that sings contemporary music. There is no hymnal. There's an, you know, there are overhead screens that, I mean, if a song is published today, it can be on, you know, basically in a church tomorrow, theoretically, because of the technology. Um, those songs were popularized probably by Christian radio. Um, and Christian radio, I've, I've seen some estimates that say that as many as 50% of the people who listen to Christian radio are not even Christians. They just like the happy, upbeat music that they hear on Christian radio. So is it fair to say that that's a huge difference, that you've got, you know, we've gone from a world in which the songs were very carefully curated by the, you know, wise men and women of a denomination to the point where today they're being curated by soccer moms who are trying not to hear the F-bomb while their kids are in the backseat of their minivan. <laughs> I mean, am, am I being too glib when I say that? I don't want to overly idealize the past in terms of the way uh, hymnals are made, written, distributed, marketed. You know, I, I, I think there is, there probably was, and I, I don't know, I've not done, this is my area, this is not my area of research for the process of compiling hymns in the early 20th century. But, you know, that process was just as um, probably complicated and arduous, uh, you know, People are involved. I'm sure there was squabbling. I'm sure there was some territorialness over it. Well, sure, sure there was, but it was it was squabbling over theology, right? I mean, it would probably wasn't squabbling over money because there just wasn't that much of a revenue stream associated with these films in the public domain. Sure, there certainly was money associated, but with but not as much. We're talking about there's a vast difference in scale here. a huge difference in scale. And I think even, you know, if we sort of acknowledge that that process was not perfect either. Um, one of my sources who is involved in him, a compilation sort of brought this up and said, you know, when we are putting together a hymnal, we try to make sure that the vast variety of spiritual experience is represented in the hymnal so that these these different moments different experiences different seasons in faith are represented in the hymnal it's meant to be this um, body of music that can take you through the liturgical year for years and years and years so there's that i do want to be careful in giving christian radio too much credit in terms of what how worship music is being distributed and popularized. There are uh, some researchers doing really important work on this right now. Um, they work on, uh, as a as a collective, uh, an academic collaborative called Worship Leader Research, and they um, have forthcoming research that they've surveyed a bunch of worship pastors about where they're getting a lot of their music where they're finding it all. And I don't know what all their findings are, but my impression so far is that it's a pretty uh interesting combination of you know youtube social media congregants i think social media is um increasingly a way that worship music is being distributed in a way that christian radio 
even is not, you know, these playlists on Spotify, all of these sort of aggregators. Um, so worship music is being distributed and popularized that way. Now, is that still potentially problematic? Yes. Um, Cause as you say, the vetting process for a song to get popular by those streams is very different than the vetting process to get into a hymnal or right. to get into a worship service via a hymnal. Right. It has to, a song has to succeed in the industry and there are certain rules it has to play by in order for a song to become popular that way. Um, the problem, well, I don't want to say the problem, but in my mind, there are some potential problems with allowing social media to drive the popularization of worship music. Um, you know, from money, just whoever has the money to, you know, create really slick um, video production, uh, you know, these videos of, of worship music that, for example, Bethel was really able to build a massive platform on YouTube by creating these beautifully produced videos. And that's a financial issue. You know, you also run into issues of, you know, sort of physical attractiveness. Um, you end up having worship artists sort of having to succeed as these public figures in the same way that pop stars do, which I think has some potential pitfalls as well. Um, so I think you're, you're right to no, note, yes, we are dealing with a very different world. I don't want to idealize the past or kind of overly state the problems in the present, but I, I do think that there are some ways that we are just sort of allowing the rise of social media and the influence of streaming um, and the influence of the mainstream music industry. There are some ways that we're sort of allowing that to just sort of wash over us and not looking very closely at some of the incentives that that might be creating and whether we as the church might want to push back on those, whether we maybe don't want to allow those to be reflected and mirrored in the way that we create and um, promote music for worship. Well, Kelsey, I think that's a really good word to end on, even though I will be the first to admit that we've only scratched the surface um, of, of all the issues that you raised in your very excellent article. Um, so given that, given that we do need to bring our conversation to an end, let me just give you the last word. Um, anything that I'm not smart enough to ask or that you wanted to say that we didn't quite bring out in our conversation or have we covered it pretty well? I think we've covered it pretty well. I think one last thing I would add is, and I tried to make this really clear in the article, um, I wanted to set out to say what I'm outlining in the article is not necessarily that any one person or figure is doing anything wrong or bad. Um, it's more a look at this ecosystem that is being created and that when everyone involved is doing exactly what they're supposed to do, it still creates these financial pressures and uh, and these structures that are really being built under our feet. And if we don't kind of take a minute to take a step back and look at them, um, you know, they're just going to get stronger and stronger. And so I, I wanted to make that clear in the article and all the examples I use are not necessarily examples of, of individuals that I wanted to sort of point out for wrongdoing, but just showing how, um, how these actors are participating in, in these structures as they're being built. 
Very good. Kelsey, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for the article, and um, we'll link both to the article and to some of the other resources that we've talked about today in the show notes. So with that, God bless you. Thank you. Have a great day. Great. Thanks for having me. A big thank you to Kelsey McGinnis for appearing on today's program. She covers worship music for Christianity Today. She also has a Ph.D. in musicology from the University of Iowa. We'll include a link to Kelsey's cover story in this month's Christianity Today in our show notes. That story is called Corporate Worship. Our worship is turning praise into secular prophets. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosell and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Stephen DeBerry. I'm Warren Smith, coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina, and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Extra podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.